0: Chapter 20 of Afloat on the Ohio, an historical pilgrimage of a thousand miles in a skiff from Redstone to Cairo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Becky Cook. Afloat on the Ohio by Reuben Goldthwaites. Chapter 20. Shawnee Town, Farmhouses on Stilts, Cave and Rock, and Island Night. Half Moon Bar, Thursday, June 7th. A head breeze prevailed all day, strong enough to fan us into a sense of coolness, but leaving the water as unruffled as a mill-pond. Thus did we seem, in the vivid reflections of the early morning, to be sailing between double lines of shore, lovely in their groupings of luxuriant trees and tangled heaps of vine-clad drift. It was a hazy, mirage-producing atmosphere, the river appearing to melt away in space, and the ever-charming island-heads looming unsupported in mid-air. From the woods, the piercing note of locusts filled the air as with ceaseless rattle of pebbles against innumerable window-panes. At a distance, Shawnee Town appears as if built upon higher land than the neighboring bottom, but this proves on approach to be an optical illusion, for the town is walled in by a levee some thirty feet in height, above the top of which loom its chimneys and spires. Shawnee Town, laid out in 1808, soon became an important post on the Lower Ohio, and indeed ranked with Kaskaskia as one of the principal Illinois towns, although in 1817 it still only contained from thirty to forty log dwellings. During the reign of the Ohio River bargemen, it was notorious as the headquarters of the roughest element in that boisterous class, and frequently the scene of most barbarous outrages. The odious receptacle, says a chronicler of the time, of filth and villainy. In those lively days, which lasted with more or less vigor until about 1830, by which time steamboats had finally overcome popular prejudice and gained the upper hand in river transportation the people of shawnee town were largely dependent on the trade of the salt works of the neighboring saline reserve the salt licks at which in early days the bones of the mammoth were found as at big bone lick commenced a few miles below the town and embraced a district of about ninety thousand acres while illinois was still a territory these salines were rented by the united states to individuals but were granted to the new state 1818, in perpetuity the trade and time decreased with the decadence of river traffic and shawnee town has since had but slow growth it now being a dreary little place of three thousand inhabitants with unmistakable evidences of having long since seen its best days the farmers upon the wide bottoms of the lower reaches now invariably had their dwellings corn-cribs and tobacco sheds set upon posts varying from five to ten feet high according to the surrounding elevation above the normal river level at present we are as a rule hemmed in by banks full thirty or forty feet in height above the present stage after a hard climb up the steps which are frequently found cut into the clay to facilitate access to the river it is with something akin to awe that we look upon these buildings on stilts for they bespeak in times of great flood a rise in the river of between fifty and sixty feet three miles above saline river I scrambled up to photograph a farmhouse of this character. In order to get the building within the field of the camera, it was necessary to mount a cob-house of loose rails, which did duty as a pig-pen. A young woman of eighteen or twenty years, attired in a dazzling red calico gown, came out on the front of the balcony to see the operation, and for a touch of life I held her in talk until the picture was taken. She was not at all averse to thus posing, and chatted as familiarly as though we were old friends. The water, my model said, came at least once a year to the main floor of the house, some ten feet above the level of the land, and forty feet above the normal river stage. Every few years it rose to the eaves of the story-and-a-half dwelling, when the family would embark in boats, hying off to the black-lying hills, a a mile-and-a-half away. An event of this sort seemed quite commonplace to the girl, and not at all to be viewed as a calamity. As in other houses of the bottom farmers of this district, there is no wallpaper, no plaster upon the walls and little or nothing else to be injured by water their few household possessions can readily be packed into a scow together with the livestock and behold the family is ready if need be to float away to the ends of the world as a matter of fact if they carry food enough with them and a rain-proof tent their season on the hills is but a prolonged picnic when the waters sufficiently subside they float back again to their home the river mud is scraped out of the rooms and the kitchen stove rubbed up a bit and soon everything is again at rights with a fresh layer of alluvial deposit to fertilize the fields. Few of these small farmers own the lands they till. From Pittsburgh down, the great majority of Ohio River planters are but tenants. The ill families that once owned the soil are living in the neighboring towns, or in other parts of the country, and renting out their acres to these cultivators. We were told that the rental fee around Owensboro is usually in kind, fourteen bushels of good salable corn being the rate per acre, In Egypt, as southern Illinois is called, the average rent is four or five dollars in money, except in years when the water remains long upon the ground and thus shortens the season. Then the fee is correspondingly reduced. The girl on the balcony averred that in 1893 it amounted to one-third the value of the average yield. The numerous huge stilted corn cribs we see are constructed so that wagons can drive up into them, and, after unloading in bins on either side, descend another incline at the far end. Sometimes a portion of the crib is boarded up for a residence, with windows and a little balcony which does double duty as a porch and a landing stage for the boats in time of high water. Scattered about on the level are loosely built sheds of rails, for stock, which practically live al fresco, so far as actual storm shelter goes. Usually the flooded bottoms are denuded of trees, save perhaps a narrow fringe along the bank, and a few dead trunks scattered here and there, while back, a third or half a mile from the river, lies a dense line of forest far beyond which rises the low rim of the basin but just below saline river eight hundred and fifty seven miles a little lazy stream of few rods width the hills now perhaps eighty or a hundred feet in height again approach to the water's edge and henceforth to the mouth we are to have alternating semicircular wooded bottoms and shaly often palisaded uplands grown to scrub and vines much in the fashion of some of the middle reaches A trading boat was moored just within the Saline, where we stopped for lunch under a clump of sycamores. The owner obtains butter and eggs from the farmers in exchange for his varied wares, and sells them at a goodly profit to passing steamers, which will always stop when flagged. Approaching Cave in Rock, Illinois, eight hundred and sixty nine miles, the right bank is for several miles an almost continuous palisade of limestone, thick studded with black and brown flints. In the breaking down of this escarpment, popularly styled battery rocks numerous caves have been formed the largest of which gave the place its name it is a rather low opening into the rock perhaps two hundred feet deep and the floor some twenty feet above the present level of the river in times of flood it is frequently so filled with water that boats enter and thousands of silly people have in two or three generations past carved or painted their names upon the vaulted roof From this large entrance hall, a chimney-like hole in the roof leads to another chamber, said to be imposing and widely ramified, not unlike a Gothic cathedral, said Ash, an early English traveller in 1806, who appears to have everywhere in these western wilds sought the marvellous and found it. About 1801, a band of robbers made these inner recesses their home, and frequently sailed thence to rob passing boats, and incidentally to murder the crews as for the little hamlet of cave and rock nestled in a break in the palisade a few hundred yards below it was between eighteen o one and eighteen o five the seat of another species of brigandage a land speculation wherein schemers waxed rich from the confusion engendered by conflicting claims of settlers the outgrowth of carelessly phrased indian treaties and overlapping french and english patents from eighteen o four to eighteen ten A Congressional Committee was engaged in straightening out this weary tangle, and its decisions ratified by Congress are to-day the foundation of many land titles in Indiana and Illinois. We are encamped tonight upon the Illinois shore, opposite Half Moon Bar, 872 miles, and a mile above Hurricane Island. Towering above us are great sycamores, cypress, maples, and elms, and all about a dense jungle of grasses, vines, and monster weeds, the rank horseweed being now some ten feet high with a stem an inch in diameter. The dead stalks of last year's growth in the broad rolling fields to our rear indicate a possibility of sixteen feet, and an apparent desire to outrival the corn. Canebrake, too, is prevalent hereabout, with stalks two inches or more thick. The mulberries are reddening, the doctor reports on his return with the boy from a botanizing expedition, and blackcaps are turning, while bergamot and vervain are among the plants newly added to the herbarium. STEWARDS ISLAND, FRIDAY, 8th We arose this morning to find the tent as wet from dew and fog as if there had been a shower, and the bushes by the landing were sparkling with great beads of moisture. The bold black head of Hurricane Island stood out with startling distinctness, framed in rolling fog. Through a cloud-bank on the horizon the sun was bursting with a dull glow of burnished copper. By the time of starting the fog had lifted, and the sun swung clear in a steel-blue sky. But there was still a soft haze, on the land and river which dreamily close the ever-changing vistas and we seem to float through an enchanted land the approach to elizabeth illinois eight hundred and seventy seven miles is picturesque but of the dry little town of seven hundred souls with its rocky undulating streets set in a break in the line of palisades very little is to be seen from the river quarrying for paving stones appears to be the chief pursuit of the elizabethans at roseclare illinois a string of shanties three miles below are two idle plants of the Argyle Lead and Fluorspar Mining Companies, of Carsville, Kentucky, is another arid hillside hamlet, with striking escarpments stretching above and below for several miles. Mammoth boulders, a dozen or more feet in height, relics doubtless of once formidable cliffs, here line the riverside. The palisaded hills reappear in Illinois, commencing at Parkinson's Landing, a dreary little settlement on a waste of barren stony slope flanking the perpendicular wall. Just above Golconda Island, 890 miles, on the Illinois side, we were witness to a meet of farmers for a squirrel hunt, a favorite amusement in these parts. There were five men upon a side, all carrying guns. As we passed they were shaking hands preparatory to separating for the batu. Upon the bank above, in a grove of cypress, pawpaw, and sycamore, their horses were standing unhitched from the poles of the wagons in which they had been driven, and tied to trees, feeding from boxes set upon the ground. It was pleasant to see that these people, who must lead dreary lives upon the malaria-stricken and flood-washed bottoms, occasionally take a holiday with a spice of rational adventure in it. Although there is the probability that this squirrel-hunt may be followed to-night by a roistering at the village tavern, the losing side paying the score. We reached Stewart's Island, 901 miles, at five o'clock, and went into camp upon the landing beach of hard, white sand facing Kentucky. The island is two miles long, the owner living in Bird's Point Landing, Kentucky, just below us, a rather shabby but picturesquely situated little village at the base of a pretty wooded hills. A hundred and fifty acres of the island are planted to corn, and the owner's laborers, a white overseer and five blacks, our housed a half a mile above us in a rude cabin half hidden in a generous maple grove the white man soon came down to the strand riding his mule and both drank freely from the muddy river he was a fairly intelligent young fellow and proud of his mount no need of lines he said for this yer mule ye only say gee and ha and he done git that ere time sir pears to me he just done think it out hisself like a man would It ain't no use trying boss that yer mule He's that ugly when he's sot on it, but jist pat him on the neck and say, So thar, Solomon, and there ain't no one but knows how to act better'n he. As we were at dinner in the twilight, the five Negroes also came riding down the angling roadway in picturesque single file, singing snatches of camp-meeting songs in that weird minor key which we are so familiar in jubilee music. Across the river, a Kentucky darky, riding a mule along the dusky woodland road at the base of the hills, and evidently going home from his work in the fields, was singing at the top of his bent, apparently as a stimulus to failing courage. Our islanders shouted at him in derision. The shoreman's replies, which lacked not for spice, came clear and sharp across the half-mile of smooth water, and his tormentors quickly ceased chafing. Having all drunk copiously, men and mules resumed their line of march up the bank, and disappeared as they came, still chanting the crude melodies of their people. An hour later we could hear them at the cabin singing John Brown's Body and other old friends with the moon bright and clear in its first quarter adding a touch of romance to the scene. End of chapter 20.